Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. On a typical morning, I trawl through my dreary work emails. I send texts and get ignored by my teenage daughter using a messaging app. And I might log into my banking app depressingly. All these services are operated by private companies. But with Web3, Silicon Valley's latest hypey buzzword, this could all be about to change. Over the past decade, society has come to accept that the internet is dominated by a small number of big tech firms. But some technologists feel that we've lost control. They've long been trying to challenge these companies' centralization of the internet. And now, the idea of a decentralized web is gaining traction. That's the idea behind what's known as Web3. Will it really reinvent the internet? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, an editor at The Economist. Today, we'll explore the idea of Web3. What is the technology behind a decentralized internet? You could build any kind of software on this. So you could build Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or any kind of application on top of a blockchain. How much of a difference would it make to users like you and me? In countries where basically government and government services can't be relied on, being able to have organization and trust out of the box with a protocol is a very powerful thing. And is decentralization really desirable? The fundamental question with Web3 is, yes, even if the vision of this is a new radically decentralizing technology, what will the new locus of centralization be? But first, to understand the concept of Web3, let's wind the clock back to the iterations of the Internet that came before, starting just over three decades ago. In the sort of the first 10 years of the web, you created and hosted the content yourself. Benedict Evans is a technology analyst and formerly worked at the Silicon Valley venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. So whether you're a blogger or you're a giant company, you create the website, you run the website, you create everything that's on the website. And that kind of exists in a silo. Remember those days? You would dial up to connect. And it would be a f***ing nightmare to do anything of any use. We sometimes called it the World Wide Wait. But then the internet evolved incredibly quickly. Web 2.0 was this very influential term coined by Tim O'Reilly, who said there's this whole wave of new companies coming out that are sort of shifting the internet in an interesting new way. Web 2.0 sounds like a version number. 
That's Tim O'Reilly, a legendary technologist and the founder of O'Reilly Media, which has long been at the epicenter of Silicon Valley trends. In some ways, Tim is the spiritual guide of the valley, giving the world a richer understanding of what's happening and why it matters. When we coined that term back in uh, 2003, 2004, we were referring to the second coming of the web after everybody thought it was over with the dot-com bust. Amazon.com gives such great discounts that even with the shipping, you come out ahead. I like not standing in line. Instead of standing in line, I just sit here and punch one button and my book's on the way. Call now for America Online, a new way to use your computer to communicate, have fun, and get instant news and information. Do you, uh, Yahoo? <laughs> So it was really an attempt to define why some companies survived and had enormous success while others had gone away. The term also defined the changing landscape of the web. In 1993, there were 200 websites and we had a hand curated catalog. We thought it was a kind of a publishing problem. And then Yahoo picked up that and they kind of automated it somewhat, but it was this giant catalog. And Pretty rapidly, it outgrew that. And, and then along came Google and figured out, oh, we're going to have to put all this sort of software robots to work tracking all the new websites. And then we have to have a search engine that really works so people can find things. And one thing led to another. And over the next four or five years, you end up with this massive aggregator who was the central switchboard of the Internet. And so for me, the heart of Web 2.0 was, although we weren't using the term yet, big data. At that point, I, I talked about harnessing collective intelligence. I talked about how the internet was becoming the platform for new applications. But I also talked about taking data from all the activity on the internet and getting signal out of it, getting new kinds of knowledge and understanding would end up in a new monopoly. Web 2 starts with harnessing collective intelligence and it ends with data is the next Intel Inside. If you recall, Intel Inside was Intel's slogan. They were the other monopoly besides Microsoft from the PC era. What was happening in the mid-2000s was everything from sort of Yelp to Delicious to TripAdvisor to Foursquare to YouTube, um, and then a little bit later sort of social networks, in which the content is created by the users. Benedict Evans again. And it can then be linked and shared and distributed and reposted and embedded in all sorts of ways in all sorts of other places. And so instead of individual or company create content, host content, publish content on their own website, it becomes much more federated, much more distributed, both in the distribution, but also in the creation of the content. And so that was Web 2.0. Web 3.0 says, well, then, what if the users were actually controlling the system as well? There isn't yet a strict definition for Web 3 because it's just a set of ideas proposed by technologists. But advocates hail it as a better, more decentralized version of the internet. And it's built atop distributed ledger technology, known as blockchains. So the essential concept of Web3 goes back to the Satoshi Nakamoto paper about blockchain. A blockchain is a distributed virtual computing system that runs across many computers that contains incentives, that contains payments and governance and some kinds of deterministic software that runs in a trustless way. Trustless? What do you mean by that? If I stand by the side of a motorway and the cars go past, I trust that the cars won't veer off the road and hit me. 
But if I stand by the side of a railway line, I don't have to trust that the train won't hit me. I know the train won't hit me because the rails are there. And so if I write something for The Economist and I sign a contract that you're going to pay me, I trust that you'll pay me. And then I trust as a last resort that the legal system will make you pay me. But if I enter into a smart contract on a blockchain, I don't trust that I'll get paid. I can see all the software. So I know exactly how that contract will function. And I know whether or not I will get paid. And so I don't need to trust the system. Instead, I can see the working of the system. Most things we do online on centralized so-called Web2 platforms involve a trusted party. That could be a bank or a payment system to authenticate your payment. The recipient trusts that the bank will indeed pay them. In a decentralized system, the trust is placed in the code on the blockchain, which allows peer-to-peer spending without the bank. That's the idea that Bitcoin was based on, cryptocurrencies being the most apparent example of building a decentralized system using the blockchain. Web3 is a third way of thinking about cryptocurrencies. If the first version is that this is a digital currency, digital gold, way of of moving money around digitally, and the second way was to think, well, maybe you could program this and you could build software to process money and move money around which gets you to so-called DeFi, distributed finance. And then the third step is to think, well, hang on a second, you could build any kind of software on this. So you could build Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or any kind of application on top of a blockchain. Blockchain is the technology behind NFTs too. The market for non-fungible tokens is evolving fast. People are spending hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars on NFTs. To explore this entertaining, fast-paced and flawed market, The Economist went down the rabbit hole. That's my friend and wonderful colleague and fellow podcast host, Rachna Schonberg, The Economist finance editor, explaining the world of NFTs on our Money Talks podcast. An NFT is a digital record of ownership that lives on a blockchain and can be bought using cryptocurrency. The non-fungible bit just means that they're unique. One NFT cannot be swapped for another, unlike a dollar bill or any other currency for that matter. NFTs are digital originals, and they can be of almost anything. A tweet, a piece of code, a video of a basketball player's epic slam dunk. And in 2021, the markets exploded. Blockchain technology, which is the undergirding to cryptocurrencies and NFTs, is the foundation of Web3. Web3 is a description of what you would be able to build with these technologies. In 2013, Bitcoin had been around already for quite a few years and people had started to experiment what else one could do with the underlying technology other than just doing simple financial transactions. Jotta Steiner is an applied mathematician. She helped to develop the Ethereum blockchain as its security chief and went on to found Parity Technologies, a company that develops blockchain protocols. She explained that if Web3 technology does become mainstream, the way most people use the internet might not change much at all. For most people, it's going to be, I think, relatively unnoticed as the way how you would interact with services within the Web3 ecosystem is in the end through a browser. I mean, not very different from how people interact at the moment with Web2. There is one key thing I think that um, people are still getting used to and where there's still a lot of 
work needed in terms of the user experience, which is the management of private keys, which is related to, well, if you want agency, typically that comes with a certain degree of responsibility as well. And in the case of web-free technologies, it's ensuring that the private cryptographic key, which gives you the control over assets within Web3, is properly secured. It is a different way of interacting, but it's typically, it's still done through the browser. So it's not like you need a new device in order to interact with Web3. I was a mobile analyst back in the sort of the mid 2000s. That's Benedict Evans again. And people were talking a lot about location services. And people would say, you'll walk past a Starbucks and your phone will send you an SMS with a coupon for the Starbucks because the network is tracking your location and Starbucks have paid for this and they'll send you this thing. And you heard this at every single conference you went to for like three years. And it never happened for a whole bunch of reasons. But meanwhile, it didn't occur to anybody that getting a taxi might be a location-based problem. Location is now hugely important in smartphones, but not like that. And still, nobody still does location-based advertising. It has never happened. But location became kind of important. And, you know, talking about Web3 use cases today is a little bit like this. First of all, there's like three use cases that get discussed over and over and over again. You could build a, um, a football league on blockchain. You could build Instagram on blockchain. You could build a payment system on blockchain. People repeat these examples over and over again. And they're very kind of compelling and exciting. And it makes sense to think, well, you could build Instagram on a blockchain and then it, you wouldn't be reliant on Facebook's whim for who gets paid and what and how. But we don't actually have the actual use cases yet. And it's kind of deterministically, it's quite likely that the use cases we predict aren't the ones that happen. Alongside cryptocurrencies, NFTs are the most visible instantiation of Web3 today. This part of Web3 has been popular for over a year, at least in geeky circles. Between February and November 2021, the nearly 3 million NFTs in existence were owned by just 360,000 people. What is striking, though, is that last month, both Facebook and Twitter started integrating NFTs into their platforms. We have what's called NFT profile pictures. Esther Crawford is a product manager at Twitter. She's looking at ways to incorporate Web3 concepts into the platform. This allows you to actually see a new shape of a profile photo, a hexagon, and that's to give a signal that the person's avatar is actually a digital asset that is owned by that account. And also, we have built Bitcoin tipping. Today, everyone on Twitter can turn on tips, and that includes tips using Bitcoin. The reason why this is so impactful for the creator economy is it gives creators ownership in what they're creating and building. We believe that creators should have more portability of their followers, content, the ability to move around from platform to platform, and they should be able to earn money no matter where they live. The so-called Web2 giant is even funding the development of decentralized social network capabilities. One of our investments has been in Blue Sky, which is a long-term project. Blue Sky is actually independent from Twitter, but we are financing it. For us, we really think about it as a new protocol layer, and Twitter could be one of the first platforms to actually move on to that new protocol. It would only really be successful in the long run if many other companies did as well. But you know, we see it as a key for serving the global conversation. Don't you feel you're risking the company? I mean, the company is based on centralization, is it not? 
No. So today, a lot of our business is ad revenue. And we see diversification of revenue as one of our next big areas of interest. We're working really hard on diversifying our revenue streams. And we think that there's actually a lot of promise in Web3 technologies as we think about how we expand and diversify our revenue. Beyond Twitter's ambitions, Esther Crawford sees the future of the web as a combination of traditional and decentralized technologies. It's clear that there has to be some combination of these two worlds, and I think they actually will um, continue to build on top of each other, just like Web 2 built on a lot of the best things of Web 1. I think Web 3 is going to build on and extend on the best things of Web 2. Getting in on the Web 3 scene might be a wise move by the tech giants. I think the most obvious place where this is challenging is for Facebook. Benedict Evans because this creates new ways of creating networks of interactions of people and new ways of self-expression, new ways of incentive and payment around that. So it's a lot easier to imagine that you could create a social network on a cryptocurrency on a blockchain than to imagine you could create a search engine on this. Of course, Web3 isn't without its skeptics, including Twitter's co-founder, Jack Dorsey. He recently called Web3 a centralized entity with a different label, and claimed that it's actually owned by the venture capital firms that invested in it, not the users. There's two kinds of proponents. Tim O'Reilly again. One is there are a set of technologists who really believe in it, in much the same way that, say, Richard Stallman believed in the free software vision. You know, this is a moral cause. It's transformative. It's powerful. And then there's a bunch of people who believe in it because you can make a ton of money. And that goes all the range from people who are trying to build real investments that create some kind of future around crypto and build better implementations and look for the breakthrough applications all the way up to, you know, pretty obvious grifters. Tim O'Reilly also explained that decentralized might just be a phase in the technology's development anyway. All of my thinking is not based on deep experience or understanding of the Web3 technology stack. It's really much more based on my pattern sense from being in the computer industry for, you know, 40 plus years. And that pattern sense was shaped by three or four ages of decentralization followed by centralization. Uh, And then a new wave of decentralization and a new wave of centralization. So when Web3 advocates say, we now have cracked the code and we're going to build this new decentralized web, I go, well, when one thing becomes decentralized, something else becomes centralized. And that was a great description of my experience in the computer industry. In the mainframe era, hardware was the locus of centralization and monopoly. In the PC era, the PC became a commodity and Microsoft figured out how to make software the locus of centralization and monopoly power. And then we had this new internet era with open source software and the open protocols of the internet, which led to all the same kinds of rhetoric as we're hearing now about Web3. And companies like Google and and others figured out how to make big data the new locus of centralization. So for me, the fundamental question with Web3 is, yes, even if the vision of this is a new radically decentralizing technology, what will the new locus of centralization be? 
This is becoming increasingly apparent. Recently, an entrepreneur called Moxie Marlinspike created an NFT. Moxie is the founder of Signal. So he's a crypto guy, but not a, a blockchain guy. And he started playing around with NFTs and he discovered how fragile the infrastructure was. Although it looked as cryptographically sound as any other NFT, Mr. Marlin Spike's token could shift shape depending which platform it was opened or sold on. If you're looking at the NFT in one marketplace called OpenSea, it was a piece of art reminiscent of a clock. On another platform called Rarible, it was a completely different piece of art. But when you bought it and viewed it on a computer, it always looked like a poop emoji. He was just playing around, and he got banned by OpenSea, and suddenly it disappeared from his wallet, because it turns out that here's this big centralized aggregator who was able to say, no, well, we're not honoring that API call anymore, and so it may be on the blockchain, but nobody can see it. OpenSea's reaction illustrated the fact that the supposedly decentralized Web3 already has its own gatekeepers. And so... You know, I, I suppose he could have written some new thing. But, you know, you, you see the potential that happens where you go, oh, of course people will be able to, to regulate this, to shape it. Whether or not Web3 technologies will actually end up becoming re-centralized remains to be seen. Perhaps centralization isn't even the problem with Web2 anyway. Technically, the computations that happen in Web 2 are distributed amongst servers. And there is a small number of uh, root servers which are controlled by an organization. And in theory, that organization can block you from the names of your website and so on. And this, by uh, libertarians, is considered a big problem. By ordinary people, Nobody worries about it. The technical infrastructure of Web2 isn't actually centralized. It's things like TCP IP, DNS. For the uninitiated, these are the protocols that sustain the internet. It's a theory that David Rosenthal, a retired software engineer and decentralized web researcher, knows all too well. If you ask ordinary people what the problem of Web2 is, it's rife with annoying ads, scams, ransomware, and extremely expensive ISPs. So it's not clear why decentralization is going to solve any of these problems. The forces centralizing Web2 are not technical, but economic, economies of scale and network effects. So the idea that changing the technical infrastructure is going to fix the problem of centralization just is incredible. And in fact, since the way that you get at Web3 is through sites like OpenSea and Coinbase, which are actually just Web2's interfaces to this underlying decentralized world. It's pretty clear that it's not actually going to make much difference. So if we ignore the gaslighting around decentralization, the real problem that Web3 is designed to solve is that VCs have vast amounts of money and they need to invest it in sexy-sounding technologies. He also told us about the problems that he sees with using blockchain to facilitate a decentralized web. And it's safe to say there were a few. 
if anyone can join in and it's free to join in, anyone can create any number of identities which purport to be independent, but which are actually under their control. And since the way that decentralized systems work is that they have to agree, uh, they have to achieve consensus on, for example, which transactions are in the next block. If it's free to create an, any number of identities, you can overwhelm this system in what's called the Sybil attack. And so it has to be expensive to join in. The way that some blockchains have done this is by using what's called proof-of-work systems. Proof-of-work is a way of making it expensive to have an identity in a decentralized system. But proof-of-work systems burn vast amounts of electricity. It is the method and shortcoming for Bitcoin. This is the reason why China kicked out the cryptocurrency miners, because they were using the electricity that they needed to warm homes and keep factories running. The Bitcoin blockchain uses as much energy as I think the Netherlands is the current example. And it also generates as much e-waste as the Netherlands because the chips used for mining have an economic lifetime of about 16 months. David told us about the alternatives to the proof-of-work method. Some cryptocurrencies use an alternative mechanism called proof-of-stake, which basically says that the holders of the most cryptocurrency in the system get to decide which transactions take place. Bitcoin is heavily invested in proof of work. I don't see any way of persuading Bitcoin to abandon proof of work and all their investment in mining chips and so on and switch to a different technology. Ethereum, uh, I, I mean, I give the guys behind Ethereum a great deal of credit because more than seven years ago, they realized that proof of work was a big problem and started work on transitioning to proof of stake. And seven years later, they're still working on it because it's actually a very, very, very difficult problem. And that assumes that you think proof of stake is a good idea, which I don't, because it's a way of guaranteeing increasing inequality. On the other hand, according to Jota Steiner, the trustless nature of Web3 might make it more useful than the conventional alternatives. I think in many countries where you have stable governments, the advantages of Web3 technologies might not be as obvious. But in countries where basically um, government and government services can't be relied on, being able to have organization and trust out of the box with a protocol is a very powerful thing. And so we've seen people experiment in the last few years a lot with how to translate financial services that have so far only been provided by big banks and regulated by the governments on-chain. This is what people might have heard about in the context of decentralized finance or DeFi, as it's called. And so it's basically opening up very powerful financial tools to anybody in the world that wants to use them. That said, though, blockchain technology is not yet fast or powerful enough to sustain Web3 platforms at scale. Every new technology is unscalable, slow and expensive. Benedict Evans. And then you find out who was right. 
So steamships were unscalable because they couldn't possibly carry enough coal to go across oceans. And, you know, aircraft were unscalable because how on earth are you going to carry 5,000 people on this thing that's made out of canvas and, and wood? And some of these things, it turns out that the bit that's unscalable isn't the bit that's important. So is Web3 the future of how we interact online? I think it's certainly possible that we will all be using something that looks fundamentally different because of Web3. You don't have to believe that everybody will be trading Bitcoin and paying for their coffee with cryptocurrencies to think that this could be important. On a technological side, I'm actually amazed about the progress that's been made in the last few years. If you'd asked me, say, three or so years ago, how long it might still take for people to use Web3 technologies or services built on Web3 technologies, I probably would have said like still five to 10 years. But because it's largely open source projects, which means the software code can be read and modified by developers, it means there's been a lot of innovation in the space. And the fact that you don't need a centralized party for doing trustless interactions on the web. And uh, I don't think this can be underestimated as an innovation. It is still early in the development of Web3. And like all nascent technologies, it will shapeshift to meet user needs and unconsidered constraints. We often only understand revolutions in the rear view mirror, not the windshield. Ask me in 10 years and, and we'll find out the answer. Um, with all of these technologies, you know, if you think about them, what did the mobile internet look like in 2000? You know, what did the internet look like in 1990? What did smartphones look like in 2010? You always have some of it, but you never have, you know, the entire picture. There's a, a lot of different voices. Tech prophet Tim O'Reilly again. Some of them are saying that Web3 will change the way people use the internet because it will return power to the people. And I don't see it. Just already we can look and see we have NFTs and go, there are people who might say, oh, that's peripheral to the, the pure crypto. But guess what? We see big aggregators already in that space who have centralized power. And it reminds me a lot of my years with open source software and the early internet, where we all believe that this was a truly decentralizing technology, empowering everyone. And we went through even periods when it really looked like it was happening, you know, blogging, for example. Everybody had their own website. And yet we ended up back in a big centralized media environment. And, and so I just, I don't see how crypto changes that fundamental dynamic. David Rosenthal agrees. There are a small number of companies that dominate this space because that's the way these things work, as we see with Web2. And if there was a way to shut them down, this would help greatly. But he suspects the idea is not going away. At some point, there's probably going to be a much bigger crash than we're currently experiencing. But some people are going to view this as being a, a buying opportunity. And so it's just, it's not going away. And I think the best thing that could happen is for governments around the world to say proof of work is illegal because it's wasteful, it's pushing up energy prices for everyone. We can't really afford to waste entire countries' worth of it on speculation. 
there are compelling arguments on all sides of the Web3 debate, and it's left me with nothing but more questions. So I've decided to speak to The Economist technology editors to see if they could provide some answers. That's coming up. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. To help me make sense of Web3, I'm joined now by The Economist technology editors, Tim Cross, who's based in London, and Ludwig Ziegler, who reports from Silicon Valley. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. Welcome, Ludwig. Hi, Ken. Now, Ludwig, you recently wrote about the business of Web3 in The Economist, and as we've heard, there's some skeptics to the label itself, and that maybe there's a bit of a financial bubble that's creeping up in Silicon Valley around it. To what extent do you think that that's true? I mean, there's certainly lots of investment activity. The latest numbers I've seen last year, $25 billion of venture capital were invested in Web3 companies. I mean, that includes crypto and NFTs and all that. But in that space, $25 billion, that's quite a lot of money. And it's up from $5 billion in 2020. I mean, if you look at Andreessen Horowitz, big Silicon Valley venture capital fund firm, They've raised $3 billion to invest in Web3 companies. Uh, they will raise another $4.5 billion reportedly. They've invested in more than 60 Web3 companies. And a dozen of them have already kind of reached unicorn status, meaning they have a valuation of, of $1 billion plus. Is that a bubble? Well, <laughs> that's always a discussion. I would say that there's much going on. And whether it's a bubble, we actually have to see <laughs> once there's less activity. I mean, right now, anything crypto is in a way being subsidized by rising prices and all that. So I would say kind of it's not a very satisfactory answer, but it's it's too early to tell. Tim, how significant do you think the idea of Web3 is? I agree with Ludwig, actually, in that the fact that this has sort of come out of, of crypto land makes it quite hard to tell because there are people out there who genuinely think this is something new and, and could provide all these services of, of sort of great value. And then there's a very large number of people who are piling in basically because like crypto itself, it's another opportunity for speculation and they're hoping to sort of get rich quick. So I think it's slightly hard to discern the signal from the noise. What I find interesting about it is in a way, it's it's sort of back to the future here. When the internet was, was new or when the consumer internet was new in, in the sort of mid 90s, the flavor then was very sort of West Coast techno-libertarian and it would be this form, this globe-spanning platform that anyone could use. It would be resistant to censorship. Governments wouldn't have much of a role and people could be sort of rugged individualists online and we could create this sort of wonderful decentralized society with no overarching authority. And of course, what's happened over the years is that sort of faded away and you've now got a a small handful of giants who, who dominate a lot of what goes on Online. So in my view, you know, Web3 in some way is, is an attempt by a lot of that original crew from the sort of mid-1990s. My main worry about that is I think we should remember that the internet centralized 
basically voluntarily. No one forced you to use Facebook. No one forced you to use Google. No one forces you to use Gmail or whatever it is. But centralization, as we know from economics generally, is often the most efficient way to do things. So the original pitch of Bitcoin, for instance, was be your own bank. But it does kind of raise the question of, well, why do I want to be my own bank? That's a lot of work. Most people don't want to be their own solicitor or their own builder or their own dentist. And, you know, people have collectively decided that they prefer to leave that to the experts. And it's not clear to me that adding another technology that gives you this option will actually make people take it. Ludwig. I would also say that there may be areas where you do want to have decentralized solutions, where it's politically better to have a decentralized solution. Perhaps you do not want to have one company owning online identity like Facebook. You want to have that in a more decentralized way. But you have to be aware that this is costly and it doesn't come automatically. And you have to make a conscious choice that you want that and perhaps subsidize or have governments run it or whatever. But it's, it's, it's not cost-free. Well, a way to square the circle of what you're both saying is that the choke points still exist, but the place where the choke points exist changes, and it leads to a whole new set of economic actors with different revenue models, and things that were costly are free, and things that we never thought we'd actually be paying for, we now are willing to do so. So I guess the question becomes, will Web3 companies end up centralizing something somewhere? What might be decentralized? What might be autonomous to the individual that isn't today? And where would there be a healthy form of centralization? And I guess where the great promise of some of the people who are proponents of this would say, well, users should own their own data. That's where it often goes to. And that big tech should be trembling in their Nikes because Web3 is going to eradicate their business model. Do you guys agree with that? I think you already see some centralization in Web3. And if you look at cryptocurrencies, which are the the sort of first application for this, most transactions now take place on exchanges like Coinbase. In Bitcoin and Ethereum, most of the mining is done by what are called mining pools, which are essentially centralized organizations that specialize in doing this and can kind of outcompete the hobbyists and so on. I think, look, as always, time will tell. I think we're just going to have to wait and see which use cases predominate. I know that's a crappy answer, but I'm not sure I have a better one. Ludwig? Yes. I mean, Web3 isn't, or crypto isn't truly decentralized. There are several kind of hidden points of centralization, and, and you can already see that it's moving towards centralization. And that is part of the big debate right now in the valleys. If you look at why uh, Web2 was centralized, it's basically that these companies, Google, Facebook, they managed to centralize the big databases, Google Search and, and Facebook uh, Social Graph. And so, so they own these databases. And the promise of decentralization of the blockchain is that you kind of decentralize these databases or that at least you make the control of these databases decentralized. And I think that is of value. That said, again, companies, they have to make money, especially companies that are financed or funded by, by venture capitalists. They want to go public. They, they, they want to have a big exit. And so they will find places where they can choke people, where they can centralize it, where they can extract rent. In this case, that may not be the databases, but it may be something else. It may be mining. It may be other points of centralization. But I think if you want to control that or at least keep history from repeating itself, you have to be aware of that, that these points of centralization will appear and perhaps you can find ways of of mitigating the damage. Now, a final question for both of you. Where should we be looking in the coming years to see how Web3 technologies materialize if they ever do properly? Ludwig. I would say as all new technologies, this one will find its niche I mean, I'm not personally sure that NFTs are, are really as important as they, they're made out to be, but they have a place, for example, in the metaverse, should it ever materialize. 
in the sense that if you, for example, want to have ownership of digital objects and you want to be able to carry them from one metaverse into another, one virtual world into another, you need to have something like NFTs. So you define property rights in the metaverse. I would say NFTs make a lot of sense. And another thing is musicians minting NFTs of their music. I mean, you could see that creators can make uh, more money or be, be more in control of their business by using technologies like that, rather than selling their wares or offering their wares on big centralized platforms like Twitter or Facebook. Tim. I wonder if you might see some of the established giants starting to speak this language in a way to sort of try and grab some of the excitement around it. I mean, we know that lots of video game companies, for instance, have decided that they, they want to experiment with NFT and they've had a lot of backlash from their users. It's interesting that none of the models they're proposing are decentralized in any meaningful way. It's still in-game items of the sort you've been able to buy for, for 20 years. You just sort of lather the NFT stardust on the top to make it look exciting. And I, I do wonder if one near-term impact might be a bunch of the Web 2.0 guys, if we're going to use this system, trying to steal the clothes, even if not, not the substance. Whenever someone says the words, lather the NFT stardust, I know I'm in the hype cycle. Tim Ludwig, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Can you lather stardust? You probably can't, can you? I know you totally can. I'm gonna, <laughs> look, I'm lathering. To our listeners, I'm lathering the NFT stardust on my body right now. Do you feel it? Oh. Thanks also to Benedict Evans, Tim O'Reilly, Jota Steiner, Esther Crawford, and David Rosenthal. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can explore more of our coverage of Web3, DeFi, NFTs, and cryptocurrency by using a centralized search engine like Google or Bing to search for The Economist. Or if you're not yet a subscriber, simply type in economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory rate. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin. Mixing and sound design is by Nico Rofast, and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, forever ignored by my teenage daughter and podcast producer, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.